crawl our way through another episode here. We're going back to the vagueness of provisionism, which is a series of responses to Lane Flowers' response to an episode that Tyler Vela and I did almost a year ago now, Christmas time, on uh, on the provisionist statement of faith. Once again, it was meant as a very basic um, overview of the statement of faith with uh, a lot of uh, a lot of basic questions. Um, just to give you an idea of where we stand, this is the the third. The third response, which is going to finish up the first of two episodes that Leighton did. So you might be saying to yourself, "Whoa, does that mean we're going to get we're going to take three more after this to finish up the second part?" Uh, my guess is probably not, because as you're going to see at the end of this episode, um, Leighton unfortunately is going to begin launching into quite a lot of bloviating, where he's going to be saying, "Well, of course we had, we answered that question here, and I wrote this book there, and why didn't you just do a Google search?" And it's it's you know, little things like this, all while actually not even having the courtesy to answer the question, um, as you'll see. So with that, with those types of things happening, I think this, and he does it a lot more in the second uh, part, I think we'll be able to cut so much of that out that um, it should only take one or two more episodes after this to, to finish the series out. But uh, anyways, with that said, we're going to pick right back up where we left off. They're all, they're almost these like enlightenment humanistic ideas where, where you know, we, we are we are fundamentally, you know, good, good by nature. Um, you know, the, the babies are born innocent and good. Um, and, and, you know, God... do, do we ever say that babies are born innocent and good? No corruption. No, no, no. <laughs> and again, we've not to beat this drum, but again, their statement of faith says that uh, Adam's sin result did not result in the incapacitation of any free will nor render any person guilty. OK, Leighton Flowers does believe is not a misrepresentation. He does believe that people are born innocent. Right. And that is really the what what. Tyler and I were focusing on in this entire thing, because it really is the the central point of the debate, is what state is fallen man born into? And this is where Leighton wants to say, well, where do we ever say that uh, people are born innocent and good? Well, you teach that they're born innocent, and here you want to mention corruption and... Dead, death spiritually. Dead spiritually. What is spiritual death, Leighton? Spiritual death is the punishment for sin. So how can somebody, this is again, the contradiction of your view, something we're still waiting for you to explain, something you had the perfect opportunity to explain in your responses to us, but avoided it at all costs. How can you, how can you say that someone who has not been rendered guilty by Adam's sin, has not yet sinned and rendered themselves guilty, is an innocent person, morally speaking, and yet is spiritually dead? God has created them in a spiritually dead state. How is that how is that not unjust on God's part? If the wages of sin is death, if separation from God, he likes to talk about, oh, it's just you're 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 outside the garden, you're separated from God. Well, what is that? That is punishment for sin. So how can innocent people be born into a punished state? How can someone who has not yet sinned be under the curse of death, spiritual death, and separation from God? This is something we're waiting for you to explain. They, they can't deal with actual provisionism, it seems to me. You know, Leighton, it's hard to deal with your position when you won't even explain it. You failed in your response to answer our most basic question. How can you be born into an innocent state and yet suffer the wages of sin, spiritual death and separation from God? We're left pointing at that as a contradiction, and you're, you're accusing us of a misrepresentation. Well, in order to demonstrate it, that it's a misrepresentation, you need to explain how it's a misrepresentation. And unfortunately, you didn't do that in your response. Why not just deal with the actual provisionist statements and claims and words? That's exactly what we have been doing. Uh, we, Tyler and I did it in our episode, and I have been doing in the in these responses. And it's just, it's, it's amazing. Why, why do you have to put things that we've never said into our mouths? All we said was what your statement said, that everybody's born innocent, not guilty. And excuse us again, once again, for calling that good. If, if innocent is not good, what is it? What is this morally neutral state that you keep not come right? You won't come right out and say it, right? Because you won't come right out and answer our questions. You won't come right out and tell us what your position is. Clearly, you just leave it in this vague sort of, oh, well, we don't say that. Well, what do you say? Because I, think, I think the reason must be because if you're really clear about what provisionists say, it might seem too reasonable. It might seem too plausible. And the point here is that you're so vague that it's not clear, right? This is this is what I've noticed is that provisionism is it's 
it's so vague in so many areas and it's how they can welcome in so many different views and camps and beliefs because well I mean, we hear it from Leighton all the time. Well, so-and-so says in this book that this might be the interpretation. And other people have said this. Leighton, nobody cares about what's out there. We want to know what provisionists believe. And we're, we're, we're right on the edge of, we're just begging you to explain and answer our questions. When Tyler and I do episodes like that, we're asking really basic questions. And you're about to, as I mentioned at the end of this episode, we're going to get into how you're criticizing how basic our questions are. How could we, how could we ask such, such questions? Of course you'd answer them here and there, and we should have just done a Google search. Well, again, that might all be true, but if it's so easy to answer these questions, and if these misrepresentations are so blatant, then why couldn't you have cleared them up instead of just continuing to dodge and evade the simple questions? See, that's the difference between, when you say what Calvinist really means behind the scenes, it seems untenable, it seems like a hard pill to swallow, it seems... Right. It's just all emotion. You don't like it. Irrational. It seems like unjust and, and, and makes God seem duplicitous and all these things that you even hear Calvinists admit. That's the way they felt when they were first introduced to it. And again, speaking of unjust, right? Speaking of not coming right out and saying things, can you please explain how someone who is born innocent can be born separated from God and spiritually dead? How can somebody who has not yet sinned be under a judgment of sin? When you how is that just and fair? clearly state the system of Calvinism, it seems detestable. When you clearly state the system of provisionism... When? <laughs> that's what we're waiting for. Please clearly state your system. And the point here is it's not clear. It seems very likable. It seems very rational. It seems very basic and intuitive. And this is, this is what Leighton does all the time. And it's funny how he doesn't really even hesitate um, to say, yeah, I appeal to emotions. And, and he thinks it's valid. He thinks... Because people detest something and they love another thing, that that is an intuitively strong indicator of truth. And I think given what the Bible has to say about us as fallen sinners and how fallen sinners hate the truth of God and love, love, our, love ourselves and love what is false and love what is bad, I don't think that's a very good way of, of determining what is true and not, right? Intuitions are not the way to be going. Like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. That's, that's why I think they can't just state it that clearly. They have to make it sound as bad as they possibly can. So they use this. What do you mean is bad? Like, isn't that part of what makes your system so good that everybody's born innocent and original sin's not a thing? And that's really all we've said. Like, like, isn't it really good that man is, is born, you know, innocent and good in, in your view? I thought it's, I thought the bad view is the Calvinist view that we're all born sinners and, and horribly wretched and evil. Oh, we just, they just think we're innocent, we're good, and we're just, and now that's just this spiritual, it's just a social faux pas, sin stuff, and they have to do it that way. <laughs> Again, guys, we're beating this drum. Just check the statement of faith. It is so vague. Every person inherits a nature inclined towards sin, and therefore everybody who's capable of moral action will sin, right? So that's their little way of just, you know, addressing the reality that everybody has sinned, you know? So when you point out and say, well, why hasn't there been, well, everybody's inherits a nature, right? Inclined towards sin. Well, again, that's so, explain what that means. What is a nature inclined towards sin? Is it an evil nature? No. Is it a good nature? No. Is it, is it a morally neutral nature? Well, what is it? You got to explain these things. And, and it's funny because if the whole point here, and we're about to get into this when uh, Tyler brings up the, uh, the hypothetical perfectionism point, maybe I'll just save that for, for then. Uh, yeah, I think that's what I'm going to do. But you guys get the point here. Um, but the statement of faith is, it it's 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 clear with certain points, like people are born innocent, but it's vague in other points when it tries to address the the clear reality that the, the, both the Bible presents and that we're aware of, and that is that there is no such thing as a uh, as an innocent, sinless person. Because if they actually use our words, then too many people would be convinced to become provisionist. Like they said earlier in the broadcast, provisionism is growing in popularity. It's becoming, it's becoming something more and more people are using to describe their view of soteriology. And, you know, that's, that's funny. It's, it's true. But it's funny because when you open up the gates and let everybody in, right? Basically, as, as long as you're not a Calvinist, you can be a provisionist, right? You're more than welcome. So, of course, you're going to grow very rapidly when you just open up the gates like that. And what, what better way to combat that than a straw man? Make it sound as bad as possible so that people don't find it appealing whatsoever. And so far, the accusation of straw man is our conclusion that your view makes 
people born into a state where they are inherently good. So again, if they're inherently innocent, then how is that not good? And my point here is you, you walk into a contradiction because any answer you give as to why we are not born good is going to be the result of sin. In other words, if you say, well, we're not born good because we're born corrupt. Well, what is corruption if it's not the result of sin? Well, we're not born good because we have a, a nature inclined towards sin. We're born with a nature inclined towards sin. Well, how can, how can, a non, how can an innocent nature be inclined towards sin in the first place? That's a contradiction in my, in my view. Again, you need to do some explaining. We're not born good because we're born separated from God. Again, that's a judgment of sin. How can an innocent person be justly separated from God by God? Upon what basis is God separating that person from himself if it's not sin? The list goes on and on. And again, that's the only motive I can think of for these guys using straw man. Either that or it's easier to attack the straw man. It's harder to actually defend yourself against real provisionism. You don't want to actually defend real provisionism or, or uh, defend yourself against a real provisionist. You want to attack a straw man. It, it becomes easier. Now, all we were doing is pointing out the impressions that your very vague view gives. And when you're not clear enough, then we're left with impressions and trying to, you know, argue on the basis of those impressions. And if those impressions are false impressions, then you can't just say, hey, that's a straw man. You can't just say, oh, well, why don't you go read us? You can't just say, go do a Google search. You can't just say, why don't you take us, you know, take us for what we really say. You need to also correct us, right? This is, this is what was so sad about this overall response. Yeah, a few questions were answered, but overall, most of them were ignored, dodged, and just thrown aside under the excuse of, oh, that's a straw man. Well, explain why it's a straw man. Give your answers. Explain your view. God, God would somehow be like, you know, unjust if he, if he judged us, if, if we hadn't committed like a, like a, like a, you know. Now I need to, I'm going to replay this because Tyler's making good points here. And I have a note here that I'm, I'm playing. I'm going to play straight through this, uh, it's, uh, it's this section here. There is no comment from Leighton regarding Romans 9 and us being made sinners by the action of one man. Again, what a perfect opportunity for Leighton to have laid out his view, stopped it and said, okay, here's my view on Romans 5, and this is why this is that. And But he says nothing. Listen to this. God, God would somehow be like, you know, unjust if he, if he judged us, if, if we hadn't committed like a, like a, like a, you know, a, some type of immoral, personally immoral action, um, you know, which, which, you know, a lot of us are going to come and we're going to say, well, I mean, if you look at Romans, it was by, it was by the actions of one man that we were made sinners. That, that is a passive, uh, exactly. a passive heiress, right? So, that, I mean, that, that is a, that is a completed action in the past of a passive sense. Um, so, you know, again, it's just, it's, they're, they're coming, they're not drawing these things from the text. They're coming to the text with these certain. Okay. And as we go on here, notice there's, you know, I haven't, I haven't cut this out. There's just no response from Leighton on, on, on Romans, you know, us bringing up Romans 5. And again, dude, you need to explain your view, especially if you're going to make accusations of straw man. Yeah, and since we moved on to, you know, the idea of imputed uh, guilt or, or Article 2 uh, goes on to say that we deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or, uh, or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned, right? So they're clearly teaching that man is born innocent in the eyes of God and is not guilty until they personally themselves sin. And this is one of the things that irritated me. Um... Leighton, I mean, it's great that he lets us play through and, and lets us say what we're saying. But I want to emphasize that Leighton, he's not going to deny that man is born innocent in the eyes of God because that is what he believes. Their statement teaches it. Leighton does not deny it. And yet, he doesn't take the opportunity to, to explain it. Like, okay, yes, I do believe man is innocent and here's why. Or here's what that means. And that's, it, it doesn't mean we're good. We can still be corrupt. And even though we're innocent, he, he explains nothing. He's just silent on it. And, and that's what's so irritating. It's like, you got to explain what these things mean. You know, we can start asking questions. Why, do, why are the innocent people dying and suffering? Is God just in allowing those things? I think those are sort of mainstream things. But I want to get to how this actually, in my opinion, sort of... And again, I just said they're mainstream things. I admit those are mainstream questions. Leighton, why do innocent children die? Isn't, death, isn't the wages of sin death? How can God allow innocent children to die, suffer death, and in fact, be the one who inflicts death upon them in, in some cases with things like weather or sickness and disease. How can God do those things justly if they're innocent? Right? Very mainstream question. I suppose I should have read your book or did a Google search, right? But in your response here, can you 
you had the perfect opportunity to explain these sorts of things, and you just don't do it. Threatens the gospel. Right. Because if you deny the imputed guilt of Adam, how can you then turn around and accept the imputed righteousness of Christ? That's right. Um, and, and so if... So my point here, uh, I think it's a really, really good one. Again, everybody thinks imputed guilt, God imputing Adam's guilt to us, God seeing us as having sinned with Adam, is horribly unjust and unfair. If you think that's unfair and you think that's unjust, then you have zero basis to accept the gospel, which tells you that God will see Christ in your place, that he will impute his righteousness to you. And in fact, as I mentioned here, double imputation, it's not just that Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. It's not just that when God looks at you, he sees Christ instead, but God imputes your sin to Christ, right? And punishes him for it. And the provisionist, I think, would agree with this because their statement of faith, their statement of faith, if I remember correctly, teaches a penal substitutionary atonement. But the point is you have double imputation in the gospel. And so you have no basis of saying it's unjust or unfair. Okay? It it by definition can't be if it is the very mechanism by which God operates in uh, saving people. And, and so if I, I don't understand Colin's difficulty with this. If guilt is imputed through our willful choice to rebel and righteousness of Christ is imputed with our willful choice to trust in Christ, what's the problem? The problem remains. The problem is if you accept that you can be imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ on your behalf and Christ can be imputed your sin on his behalf, right? That is the gospel. Then you have no basis to declare the idea of Adam's imputed guilt to us, as Tyler mentioned in Romans 5, you have no basis upon which to say that that is unjust or unfair. That's the point. It's just this, the Calvinism has this unilateral, unconditional imputation. Uh, you're imputed with the guilt of Adam for no apparent reason before you're ever born. You just are. You're just that way. It's just imputed to you from birth. You're born into it. Um, right. As as descendants, right? As human beings that, that descend from, from the, our federal head, Adam, that's the way God chose to do it. We are imputed his guilt. We sinned with Adam. That is how God views um, us in our fallen state. Um, and you're reborn by this unilateral act of God to be reborn into this other condition of the imputation of righteousness onto you by Christ. Okay, so... Right. So, again, if the gospel inc includes imputation, then you shouldn't have any objection to imputation of the sin of Adam. You've just got this unilateral imputation from birth to be guilty and imputation to righteousness of being made uh, righteous by the unilateral act of God. Okay, so what's the difference? I've got you're, you're imputed by God's choice through your faith with the righteousness of Christ. And you're imputed with the guilt that came as a corruption of the world when you willfully choose to rebel and sin and suppress truth. And so what's the problem? Which one's more reasonable? Which, which one's biblical? Again, read Romans 5 and you'll see which is biblical. Consider the gospel, right, and double imputation, and you'll see which is biblical. And based upon the actual scriptural uh, teachings, um, I, I just listened to, and I'll get to this later, and I won't spend a lot of time on this. I just listened to Chris Day talking to uh, another gentleman about uh, Romans 5.12 and how the, it was misused from the Latin text by Augustine to introduce this concept. Um, but he actually mentioned something that I, had, I wasn't aware of, that even uh, Thomas Schreiner, who is a Reformed exegete, well-respected well Reformed exegete, actually interprets Romans 5.12 the same way that we do. In other words, it can be rendered that way, proving at least, and I think Chris was being very uh, objective, intellectually honest, to be able to suggest that, you know, this it's reasonable to suggest this verse can be taken either of the two ways. Now, you won't hear things like that from Tyler necessarily. Either of what two ways? What is your way? Tyler's more like white in the sense that he's more dogmatic and just, it's always this way and it's only this way. And if you're a real exegete, you would have to take it the way that I do. And, uh, and others, I think, are a little bit more intellectually honest. It says that the text could be grammatically interpreted this way or that's this way. And the fact that there are some even reformed exegetes that take Romans 5.12 uh, in the way that, that we understand it, at least proves that it, it, is, it is not a hard shut case with regard to how we interpret um, the concept of, of uh, imputation of, of Adam's guilt. Well, again, what is your way? Like he said, our way. Again, if you're going to do response, you need to give your way to explain what's going on. I guess I'm just supposed to do a Google search, right? Okay, because as far as I've been able to tell, they completely reject imp imputed guilt of Adam. 
They reject that. And yet they at the same time want to say that uh, everybody inherits a sinful nature. So they will say that infants are innocent but not sinless. And you wonder how we get confused by that. Because I, th- I see that as just blatant contradiction. And um, I'd like to read one of the paragraphs on... Uh, this is a very long... I think it was a paper that, that is on... It's born guilty, um, as I'm scanning through here. It says, Infants are not sinless. We reject Pelagianism. Pelagius taught that infants are sinless, and Adam was only a bad example that we chose to follow. That's wrong. Only Jesus was born without sin. All other people, including infants... Inherit a sinful nature from Adam. People may look at babies and speak of their innocence and purity. If by these words they mean that infants have not yet knowingly committed sinful actions, then yes, they are innocent and pure. But if they mean that infants are without sin exactly like Adam and Eve before the fall, or like Jesus, then no. But in all honesty, I'm not going to sit here and read the whole the whole paper, but they, they say that without really explaining what is a sinful nature inclined towards sin, and how do you square that? with being innocent and pure, right? You say that they have not committed any sinful actions, and yet they're not without sin, exactly like Adam and Eve. Well, that's convenient, right? This is what I point out all the time in the vagueness of provisionism, where they want to sound biblical, right? Of course, they don't want to say they're born totally clean slate like Adam and Eve, and yet to try to square that with saying that they they have not yet sinned, committed sinful actions, just is, again, in my view, a contradiction. And without explanation, I'm, I have no other, other thing to go, go by. If their entire argument is that it would be unjust for God to impute Adam's sin to one of his children, or all of his children, then would it not follow that God would be unjust for imputing our sin? Like, it's double imputation, right? It's not just imputing Christ's righteousness to us, but God is imputing our sin to Christ. And they affirm, uh, as far as I can tell, I think I remember reading in the statement, they affirm substitutionary atonement. Right. So you want the goods, you want the fun stuff, but you don't want the not, the not fun stuff. You want... God to be perfectly okay in, in imputing your sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to you, imputation's fine there. But for some for some reason, it makes a horrible, unjust view if you believe that God has uh, imputed Adam's guilt to all of his children. That's right. That's so. right. Which, which is, I mean, that's a major problem. But again, that just played through, and he, he had nothing to say for, for whatever reason. Now, I have to give a preemptive warning because um, Tyler's about to start talking about hypothetical perfectionism, and Leighton just completely misses the boat. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt that he was distracted by side chat. I noticed that he does that a lot when he's reviewing things. He, you know, he hits the play button and, and it goes on and he's looking over at chat, which that's that's the only thing I could think of it how, as to how he missed this so much. But listen, listen to what Tyler's saying here. Is that, that humans are born innocent, right? We, we, we are born by nature innocent and we are not, uh, we are not guilty in Adam, right? So this hypothetical perfectionism uh, is, is at least logically possible. So he just clearly said, Tyler, Tyler clearly said that you're born innocent, you haven't yet sinned, and you're also going to put forth libertarian free will, so on and so forth. So hypothetically speaking, we know that in reality, everybody has sinned, or eventually, in their view, eventually will sin. But hypothetically, wouldn't sinless perfectionism be possible, right? If your nature that you're born with is not determinative of your actions, then you should be able to never sin, right? If, if for every action that you take, you could do otherwise, and your nature did not determine you to sin, then in principle, that same principle can be applied to every action you will ever take. And so hypothetically speaking, you should be able to never sin, right? Right. What, what does it mean by logically possible? There's nothing... Now, I got to play this again, because this is where Leighton... You'll see how Leighton misses this. He's going to think, Tyler said, logically... Impossible. Uh, we are not guilty in Adam, right? So this hypothetical perfectionism uh, is is at least logically possible. Right. What, what does it mean by logically possible? There's nothing illogical about a person living a perfect sinless life. Jesus did, and he was a human. So Leighton misses his point and actually doubles down on Tyler's point, which is what's what's so funny about this. Tyler says... Hypothetical perfectionism uh, is, is at least logically possible. Living illogical about a person there's nothing illogical living a perfect sinless life. Jesus did. There's nothing illogical about a person living a sinless life. Nothing logical about that at all. I'm glad you agree, Leighton, because that's Tyler's point here. And he was a human. He lived. It's not illogical for a person to live. Was was it logical for Adam to be perfect? Not perfect. Uh, I, I don't think Adam was perfect because he was fallible. I mean, he was uh, mutable. He was able to fall. Um, and so he wasn't perfect like God is perfect. He was able to fall. But was he innocent all the way up to the point of his sin? Of course he was. Was it illogical for him to be innocent for all that time in his life? No. 
No, and that wasn't Tyler's point. No, there's nothing illogical about that. Um, to call that illogical seems to suggest there's something not logical about a person living without sin. And that's Tyler's point, is it, in your view, it should be possible, right? Right, so this hypothetical perfectionism uh, is, is at least logically possible. Okay. And it's not illogical. You could say it's unfeasible, or it's not feasible for a person who's in a corrupt world with fallen sinful desires and, and uh, temptations all around them. It's unfeasible for them to live uh, a sinless life, but you can't say it's illogical. I, I, and Tyler's usually pretty intelligent when it comes to logic and arguments. Um, I, I don't understand that one. Maybe maybe I'm missing something, but yeah. I don't know how you call that. Yeah, you illogical. were you were reading chat and you completely missed what he said. So I'll play it for the fourth time so that it's clear. In Adam, right? So this hypothetical perfectionism uh, is, is at least logically possible. He, he said exactly what you just said, right? If free will is true, uh, hypothetical perfectionism is possible. And what's so funny is to try to conform to reality, Leighton sneaks in this idea of feasibility, you know, in, in, in Molinist fashion, right? Logical versus feasible, whatever that means, right? Without really explaining, like, if it's logically possible for there to be sinless, for somebody to never sin, then why has there never been somebody who's ever sinned? And then they'll say, well, because of the world they're surrounded by. And we've gotten, we pointed out that contradiction before, you know, libertarian free will wants to say nothing external to you determines your choice. And yet, why has there never been a sinless human? Because of the sinful world external to them. Such a blatant contradiction, but. Right. Um, it, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying that the, the way, the way around that, um, that, that, you know, some, some positions have taken um, is like, like Roman Catholicism, for example, is that, well, well God still acts. The, the other, you know, the other side of the coin is that God, to avoid Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism, is that God has to act directly and immediately first on the person, right? And, and this is going to be an important distinction because they're, they're, we'll get to this one. I don't want to get too far ahead. Uh -huh. um, but, the, but God has to work directly and immediately on the person by his grace to overcome uh, original sin or, or under Calvinism, total depravity or anything you know, something along those lines. Right? If you deny of course, and we believe that God does work through various means on people. And, you know, we point out in the very first episode, okay, that Leighton wants to say, well, of course we believe God uses means and that God does work, that God works, right? But, Leighton, you do not believe that God does a work to change a person's heart. You believe that the change in heart comes after the person responds to God's external work, right? In your view, God works externally to the person. You can say he's working, quote-unquote, on them, I suppose. But you know you don't mean that in the way that we mean that, on the heart, right? In your view, God works externally on people by sending them the gospel or giving them dreams or visions or whatever, but not an internal work of God on the heart, right? Because in your view, that only comes after the person's response to, to the external work of God. And all of those means are sufficient. That's that's our argument. We just don't believe in total inability, this moral inability to respond to the means that God's chosen to reveal himself. And so that, that's the assumption we think that Calvinist and some forms of Arminianism are bringing to the text. And that's what we're contending with. Right. And we covered that in, in the first uh, the first response in our series. If you deny both of those, right, if you deny original sin, in the fallen, you know, our fallen nature, and you deny the necessity of God acting first. Uh, we, we don't deny the necessity of God acting first. God. Now you interrupted him again. Nobody cares that you have God acting, quote unquote, first by sending the gospel or causing the sun to rise or whatever it is you want to point at as God's external act. We're talking about on the heart here. Fallen nature. And you deny the necessity of God acting first. Uh, to, we, to... we don't deny the necessity of God acting first. God acts first. He makes himself abundantly known uh, through creation, through conscience, through both general and special revelation. He initiates by making himself known. So God's the initiator. God does act first on our position. So he's already creating the straw man by even just saying that. It's not a straw man because you interrupted him. We're talking about the heart. To, to... None, of, none of what you just listed off on God's quote unquote workings were on the heart there. That's all external to the heart, Leighton. And you know that. To, to, to remove the stain, corruption of original sin, to remove the barriers, all that kind of stuff, acting directly and immediately by the Spirit. On, on, so he has to... See, acting on the person is what is what Tyler is talking about. Remove the barriers in order for you to confess that you have barriers? Why? Because we're speaking of a moral, a moral uh, issue here, Leighton. The barriers are not things that are holding us back. The barriers are barriers because of our moral dispositions towards God in the first place, right? I always give my standard examples. When I say I cannot forgive someone... There's a barrier there, right? There's an inability there, a moral inability. But what is it the result of? Is it that I can't forgive them because something's holding me back? Do I really want to forgive them and just, I can't because something's holding me back? No. The reason I can't forgive them, the reason the barrier is there is because I don't want to forgive them. Because 
They've wronged me. And at least at that point in time, I'm hating them. So yes, God needs to change the heart so that the barriers go away. The moral inability goes away. And we've covered moral, moral inability in, in several episodes before. Does that, is that true in any other walk of life that you have, to, you have to remove the addiction before you can admit that you have an addiction so as to get help? No. And again, he compares it to an addiction, which is something that is a, of a physical nature, right? So somebody can really want and desire to be set free from an addiction, even though their body is holding them back from that addiction. And this just demonstrates, you know, these, these analogies that Leighton gives blow up in his face, at least as from our point of view, on how really it really demonstrates his view of fallen man. It's not that man can't come to God because they don't want to because they hate him. It's that man wants to come to God, but they're being held back in the same way an addiction holds someone back, right? It's not the same thing. You're mixing a natural ability, right, to overcome an addiction with a moral inability to, to want. And you just cannot mix those two things. There, 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 this is just, this is determinism being read over the text again and again. On the constitution of the person. Right. That just is some form of, uh, simple plagiarism is the best or downright plagiarism is at worst. And, and I've asked provisionists this many times, like, can, can, you, can you describe a substantive difference between your view and, and, and semi-plagiarism? And they right. just can't. Yeah. Okay, I've got an article where I cite Matt Slick and Carm defining what plagiarism is and then just demonstrating substantively how we differ from that definition. It's in the article. All you have to do is type in plagiarism at such a want. Not a lot of searching. Now here, this is where he's sort of starting to break into his why didn't you just do a Google search type of thing. And notice, is he going to give us, like Tyler just asked for one difference. And instead of just saying, oh, well, that's easy. Here's the difference. He says, oh, I wrote an article and go read it. Now maybe, you know, the article's there obviously and we can go read it. But Leighton, why didn't you give a reason or a difference right then and there? It's really frustrating. Not a lot of research has to be done to find that. I also just mentioned Harwood's article, Allen's article, both of which go through citation after citation, even reform citations, Calvinistic citations. Can you give us some examples? Defining both Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, and then substantially defining how we differ from those definitions. What's one example? It's all there on Sociology 101. We're just supposed to go read it. And I don't know, like, I don't know how people can take these sorts of responses seriously. Right. If, if you're just going to say, well, we've answered that before. Anybody can say that. Anybody can say, go read a book. Anybody can say, go read this article. But if you're going to do interactions and in episodes like this, people expect actual interaction, Leighton. One, not hidden from you. Just type in the word Pelagian. You'll find them all three of those articles. Plain, not a lot of work has to be done to find that very thing that Tyler's just saying doesn't exist. And he didn't say that you're adhering to Pelagianism in every respect. What he said was on this specific topic regarding the necessity of God to act on the heart of man first, you're in line with Pelagius. And, and that's a fact. So I have an article here. If you go to Britannica.com slash topic slash semi hyphen Pelagianism, you'll read this. Unlike Pelagians who denied original sin and believed in perfect human free will, the semi-Pelagian believed in the universality of original sin as a corruptive force in humanity. Right? Sounds quite a bit like the way provisions put it forth. Well, you're born with a sinful nature. We don't really define that, but you're born with a sinful nature and you're born into a world of sin. And because of that, you'll eventually sin. They also believe that without God's grace, this corruptive force could not be overcome. And they therefore admitted the necessity of grace for a Christian life and action, which, you know, everybody does. But the point here is that you've got this quote unquote corruptive force. Um, people are born innocent, right? But you still have this corruptive force, and it can't be overcome without grace. But that's, by, the def by this definition, that's semi-Pelagianism, right? But contrary to St. Augustine, they taught that the innate corruption of humankind was not so great that the initiative towards Christian commitment was beyond the powers of a person's native will, right? Which is exactly what you teach. The initiative toward Christian commitment, coming to God, repenting of your sins, hating your sin— is not beyond the powers of a person's native will. According to this view, an, indiv an individual by unaided will could desire to accept the gospel of salvation, desire, but could not be actually converted without divine help. That is semi-Pelagianism, and that is your view, Leighton. You teach that, yeah, God needs to help you along, but that first act, that desire, that want to come to God, that want to accept the gospel, that want to believe, 
right? The willingness to believe is inherent in the individual by and, and is an unaided thing. It is them and them alone, right? And don't, don't do this again. Don't say, oh, but God sends the gospel and it's aided. And that's not the point. We're talking about the condition of the heart. You do not believe that the grace of God needs to work on the heart for a person to be able to desire to accept the gospel. So by definition, at least in Britannica, that's semi-Pelagianism. Now it goes on to say in later semi-Pelagianism, divine help was conceived not as an internal empowering, graciously infused by God in a person, but as a purely external preaching or biblical uh, communication of the gospel, divine promises, divine threats, which again, semi-Pelagianism, this is what we've heard from Leighton, right? The divine quote-unquote help that Leighton believes in is not an act of God on the heart so that people will want to come to him. It is that once people want to come to him, he will help them along, right? And the possibility of wanting to come to God is made possible by God, you know, bringing the gospel and and, and these sorts of things. Now, I haven't heard one yet. Uh, granted, I don't listen to every single episode of Waiting Flowers, but... You don't I, have I, to listen to it. You just have to do a little research. We have Google now. You don't have to go to a library. You don't have to listen to everything I've read. You just type in Pelagianism. Real simple. It's Google. Yeah. I just type in semi Pelagianism. I go to Britannica and it lines up with everything you believe. Google would have found it. I haven't heard one yet. Um, and, and I really like this uh, argument. And, and again, guys, we're moving on. He's playing through. He didn't even give an example. He just said, go read my article, uh, Google it, and it's going it's, it's to be a repeated. He hasn't done it much until now, but it's starting, and it's going to be a, a recurring theme where he's just going to bloviate and say we should have done our research. How could we possibly ask such basic questions? Of course, we've answered that. Read my book. Google this, Google that, without giving a single answer in this particular response and interaction. And, and I really like this uh, argument you mentioned, the idea of hypothetical perfection. Um, it, I've, I've always wondered, if free will is true, why has there never been a sinless human? Um, and again, their article two says, every person who is capable of moral action will sin. Um, and I actually ask this question of late on one of his episodes. A lot of times at the end, he, asks, uh, he posts the comment questions and whatnot on YouTube. And I asked him, if free will is true, why has there never been a sinless human? And he basically accused me of not understanding his view of free will. And he said it's, you know, he's the king of analogies. Right. He said it's basically like if you have a, a football player, a field goal kicker, um, who's the best field goal kicker ever, even the best one, eventually will miss. But you, you have to think about what this what this means. Uh, and I made this point in my very first episode. No, before. And this is really important, okay, because I started this, I didn't realize it came this far down the road, but started this series off by by saying that we were going to get to an example of one of, one of Leighton's analogies that paints the view of sin as a mistake, right? And Leighton's going to say that's a misrepresentation. When you say that that the reason there's never been a sinless human is because even the best field goal kickers eventually will miss, the whole point of that analogy is that eventually they make a mistake. Their intentions are good. Their intentions are to always kick the field goal right, but eventually even the best ones will miss. If that's not painting sin as a mistake, I don't know what is. And of course it is, because if you were to properly modify that analogy, it would be that the field goal kicker wanted to intentionally miss, right? That's why he missed. Before you go on, there's a difference between arguing the point of analogy and arguing the analogy, okay? I agree. And I just pointed out the analogy and the point of the analogy, which was an answer to my question as to why there's never been a sinless human. When you argue the point of the analogy, then you're getting to the substance of the debate, point of contention, okay? Now, listen, okay? We're about, he's about to say this. What's the point of his analogy? And it's what I just said. That sin's a mistake. And yet, in the, the, past, uh, the past two episodes, Leighton said, where have I ever painted sin as a mistake? When you argue the analogy itself, you're nitpicking the analogy in order to avoid what the point the analogy was meaning to, 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 to demonstrate. And so what you're going to see here is Tyler and Colin arguing the analogy, not the point the analogy was attempting to demonstrate. Because obviously, the the kicker of a field goal Listen. is not a one-to-one -one ratio exactly the same as the moral ability of every creature. Obviously. Okay, but what's the point of the analogy? It's an analogy to suggest even though somebody has the capacity, the physical capacity to kick a field goal does not mean that the, therefore, just because they have that capacity to do so once or twice, that they're always going to be successful. But why not? They can mess up. You give them enough tries. They can mess up. Eventually, they can mess up because no one's perfect, right? They can mess up because no one's perfect. 
So the point of the analogy was that sin is a mistake. It's a mess up. A person has the moral capacity to resist temptation. So even a lost person, a pagan, can have the temptation to cheat on his wife or the temptation to lie or the temptation to cheat on his taxes. And you wonder why I accuse his view of making, of being a lesser view of sin, a less serious view of sin. And yet here we have him rambling on about how even the best intentioned people can just mess up. The temptation to, to steal the candy from the candy store and resist that temptation, decide not to do it, right? But does it mean they'll always do the right thing or they'll never have a lustful thought, they'll, they'll never sin? No, just because they can have the capacity, the moral capacity to kick the field goal, to resist a temptation in one given time, doesn't necessarily mean that it's feasible to suggest that if you're faced with thousands of temptations, that you will always choose to do what is right. And, and why not? The whole point is why isn't it possible? Why isn't it possible? And you're just saying because eventually they'll mess up, right? But again, you're admitting that's the point of the analogy. Because if the point of the analogy isn't that, well, sin's just, oops, I messed up, then what is sin? It is willful, intentful action, right? So you'd have to modify the analogy away from accidentally messing up and missing the field goal to intentionally turning away from the field goal and kicking a miss, right? Willfully and intentfully. But once you make that modification to the analogy then it no longer serves your purpose, which is to answer the question why there's never been a sinless human. That you will always make the right choice. So I'm, I'm comparing, comparing a physical capacity of a kicker to kick a field goal with the moral capacity of every sinner to resist temptation. I'm comparing and contrasting those points and listen to what they do instead of covering the point. Now, what we're going to do is what I just did. I've already done it, and you'll, you'll notice it's completely addressing the exact point of what the, the, uh, the analogy was. And Leighton just did a little bit of bloviating there to basically say, oh, well, they're just attacking the analogy and blah, blah, blah. No, the point of the analogy is very clear. You doubled down on it. That's what that's what I loved about this this portion. Uh, I remember hearing this and going, man, I can't wait to, to, to review that because you literally took the point of the analogy, which we hit the nail on the head, right, as you're about to hear, and you doubled down on it. You didn't say, oh, no, no, actually, I didn't mean that sin's just a mistake. This is what I meant. You actually doubled down on it and said, yeah, right? Everybody's going to eventually mess up. Now, I know this gets a little repetitive, but I did want to play a, a portion of the clip, of the original clip, where this, this happened um, in one of uh, Leighton Flowers, you know, at the end of his episodes, he takes questions from the chat. So he's going to read my question and respond. And this is along these same lines. Consistent Calvinist podcast says, Leighton, why has libertarian freedom never once resulted in a perfect human? Um, well, because I think being in a, a fallen world, uh, follow, uh, surrounded by temptations, doesn't it's not feasible to suggest that always someone's always going to resist temptation. Okay. Now, again, in Molinist fashion, he uses the word feasible there. We're, we're speaking strictly logically. Okay. If it's logically possible for you to resist a temptation, right? If you've got libertarian free will, and that means it's logically possible for you to not sin in one instance, then of necessity, it is logically possible for you to not sin in all instances. It doesn't matter if there's one or a hundred trillion. Logically speaking, this should be the case. Now he says, well, it's not feasible. Well, why not? Because now you're just bringing things down to probabilities, right? Oh, well, given enough time, somebody will eventually sin. But but why, right? You don't want to admit determinism. He's, he's sitting here talking about that sinful world again around the, around the sinner and temptations and everything. But if those don't actually, if that is not the determinative reason behind that eventual sin, then then why isn't it feasible for someone to be sinlessly perfect? The analogy I used yesterday was just because somebody has the capacity to kick a 50-yard field goal doesn't mean that if they kick the field goal a thousand times in a row, they're always going to make the field goal. In other words... Right. So again, he's talking about capacity, which we agree, right? The question is, what do they want to be doing and why? They have the capacity to kick a field goal from 50 yards, but it's not feasible to suggest that every single time they kick a field goal, they're going to make it to the 50-yard mark and, and make it between the uprights. Why not? If they have the capacity and we assume that their intentions are always to make the field goal, then why won't they always make the field goal? Right, you 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 got two choices: either because their intentions changed and they willfully wanted to miss, as we've already talked about, but that's not the point of his analogy. His analogy is that their intention remains true, but they just miss. Um, and I, I know that's an analogy comparing physical ability to moral ability, but don't don't confuse it. It's just an analogy. Um, we may have the moral ability to resist a temptation to lie, for example, uh, tomorrow at noon. If I'm if you and if you and I and a lost person even were confronted with a temptation to lie tomorrow at noon, then obviously we can kick through the uprights on that particular point we can refrain from lying at that particular point and I don't, I don't see and he says at that particular point okay well all you have to do is extrapolate that over all the points 
What, what, what's different? Why does it change? Right? Why does that actual ultimate ability to do otherwise at some point change? And the question is, in your view, logically speaking, it should never change. And therefore, it doesn't make any sense for you to say, oh, well, it's not feasible. It's like you would deny that any more so than I would deny that. Would you? I mean, maybe, maybe you would. I don't know. Um, but there's nothing, at least as far as I can tell, within the nature of a lost man or even a saved man that would, ref would, would uh, prevent him from resisting that temptation to lie when he's tempted. Okay? But that is a whole different suggestion to say that, well, because he can resist that particular temptation to lie, therefore he can be perfect. No, it's not feasible to suggest that a person who's faced with thousands of temptations every day, thousands of days in a row, will always resist temptations. Why not? Right? What's the answer to that question? Why not? You say it's not feasible, but you don't explain why. And again, if it's logically possible in one instance, then of necessity it's logically possible in every instance, all those thousands of temptations, unless you're going to say that at some point something about those instances changes that ensures that the person sins. Of course, you're not going to say that because that would contradict free will. But this is the contradiction that you've placed yourself in. And will always do so with the right motivations even. Um, and so the Bible's teaching is not that people can't do the right thing at any given time. It's that no matter how many right things they do, it will not overcome the fact that they all fall short. They all miss the mark. They all don't always hit the up through the uprights. Um, no matter how good they are, no matter how skilled they are, they will all uh, fail. They will all make mistakes. And so, and so there you go. They will all fail and make mistakes. So when Leighton says this. Okay, so if he could find a statement where any provisionist, myself included, anybody ever says we're inherently good and sometimes we just mess up, then I would say, oh, this is a, this is a good critique of us. Well, you said it here. And so the Bible's teaching is not that people can't do the right thing at any given time. It's that no matter how many right things they do, it will not overcome the fact that they all fall short. They all miss the mark. They all don't always hit the up through the uprights. Um, no matter how good they are, no matter how skilled they are, they will all uh, fail. They will all make mistakes. And you said it here. They can mess up. You give them enough tries, eventually they can mess up because no one's perfect, right? So Leighton, the point here is that don't just assume that we have ill-intended uh, straw man and misrepresentations here. We're going based on what you say and the analogies that you give, okay? Now, have you said elsewhere that sin is willful rebellion against God? Well, of course you have, and good for you for saying that, right? Because it's biblical. That is what sin is. But you've also said these things. You've also given the oppression with what you've said and the analogies that you've given, that sin is a mistake and we mess up. So I just want you to notice there's all the difference in the world in a worldview that presents man as wanting to do the right thing, intending to do the right thing, and just messing up, oops, I sinned, versus man wanting to do the wrong thing and willfully sinning, okay? There's all the difference in the world between those two things. And I'm going to be fair enough to say you've presented both of those things in different times, but how do you square the two? God giving you free will, therefore, is ensuring that eventually you will fail, is basically what you just said with that analogy. That's right. And it's basically what you just doubled down on, right? It's exactly what, 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 <laughs> what is being said. And I'm just wondering, is, is it really such a good thing to begin with? I mean, if, if free will ensures that I will fail, then I'd actually rather not have it. I'd just rather be... What do you think the law is for, Colin? The, the law has never been there for you to fulfill it so as to be saved. That's not the purpose of the law. What is wrong? And here he is. All right, we're talking about people who haven't sinned yet, right? We're talking about how, to, how do you have an innocent person and them never sinning and field goal kickers. And, and then when I mention up... When I say this, if, if free will ensures that I will fail, then I'd actually rather not. If free will, if I start off ne not sinning and free will somehow ensures eventually I will mess up and sin. Not have it. I'd just rather be. I'd rather not have it. And I was going to start talking about how the law can't save me. And that that's moving past the point of the sin onto people needing Christ. And it's just a big time whiff of, of, the, of the point here. The, the law has never been there for you to fulfill it so as to be saved. That's not the purpose of the law. What is Romans 3? We're not talking about fulfilling the law to be saved. We were talking about somebody never sinning. And Galatians teach us is the purpose of the law, to point you to your need for Christ. Yes. Sinners who have already sinned, it points them to Christ, right? But we weren't talking about that, Leighton. The whole purpose of the free will, of the choice of the tree in the garden, the choice of the, the son to take his inheritance, what's the purpose of it? To show you... To, to, to demonstrate to you what it's like to be outside of the will of the Father, to go outside, to, to walk away from God and to live your own free life. What does that have to do with addressing why nobody has ever successfully remained in the garden, so to speak, right? Why has there never been a sinless human? And we never, we never get an answer out of him on this. To do your own thing. Other than the admission that, yeah, everybody messes up every now and then. That's the purpose of giving the choice in the first place. The purpose of the law is to demonstrate so the purpose of giving the choice in the first place is to show you your need for Christ when you haven't yet sinned? I, I don't, I don't, 
I don't get it. Demonstrate to you. You need God. You need help. You cannot do this on your own. That's the purpose of it. You're talking about people who've already sinned, Leighton. That's not who we're talking about, dude. So what a distraction. And it doesn't seem Colin even recognizes that's, a, that's what... We're not talking about sinners right now. We're talking about innocent people, right? In your view, innocent people with free will who are, I guess, ensured that eventually they will sin because nobody's perfect. And all I said was, if that's true, then God giving us free will ensures that we sin. And I don't really hear you disagreeing with that because you've already admitted it. It's what our whole theodicy is based upon is the reason God put the tree in the first place. The reason he gives the inheritance to the son is so that we can experience what life is like under the rule of principalities of this dark world and Satan. And the reason we pray, God, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, because this is a world filled with things that are happening against God's will. And we're looking forward to the day we get to heaven where all that happens is in accordance with what God has willed uh, and created us for in fellowship with him. There'd be loving God for all eternity. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, and, and the analogy just failed. I mean, I, we, I don't want to get too much into free will yet. We're going to get into that. But, the, but the, the analogy just fails, right? Because yeah. because a kicker will miss because they get tired and worn out and, uh, you know, there's, there's wind conditions or they just want to give up, you know, whatever it is, right? Free will. There, there, there's none of those kind of tiring conditions that, that, goes, well, no, upon, that goes upon a capacity. There's right? not. And, and listen, he's about to... Listen, the entire point is that if free will is true, right, by literal definition, libertarian free will is that you have the ability to do otherwise. And yet you're about to hear Leighton, he already did just now, double down on, well, every now and then we'll mess up. But again, if the whole point here is if libertarian free will were a thing, then that shouldn't be, and messing up, right, being guaranteed to mess up should not be a thing. It should be, again, hypothetically possible to never sin. I, uh, that's, when I heard this, I just almost fell over walking. I was just like, are you kidding me? When do I sin the most? When, when I haven't properly taken care of my body, when I am tired, when I'm frustrated, when I'm angry, when there's conditions that are really bad, when the weather's really bad, when it gets, my wife talks about this. I get, when so it, you know, it's amusing to hear free will proponents talk about all the determinative reasons behind why you sin. And here Leighton's talk about, oh, when I'm tired and this and that and the weather and people around me and life's just rough and that sinful world external to us. Like, Leighton, you are so hardcore contradicting your inherent libertarian free will view right now that you, you can't even seem to realize it's, it. It's wintertime. It gets so dark so fast. She'll talk about depression and then we'll get into an argument. Fine. I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm just in a bad mood right now because of the conditions around me. It's, it's just funny to me. Even, around even... You? <laughs> so... I thought the entire point of free will is that your choices aren't determined by things external to you, right? And here you are saying that you sin the most when there are all sorts of things external to you which result in you sinning. I mean, this is what happens when a free will proponent has to acknowledge reality. And Leighton will say, oh, those are all influences. They're not determinative. I've done episodes on that already in the past. But you start with a simple concept. Free will, is, libertarian free will is that nothing external to you determines your choice. So why has there never been a sinless human? Oh, it's because of the, the sinful world external to the chooser. That's not a contradiction. I don't know what is. Him arguing the analogy fails because the analogy actually fits that perfectly. The fact that we're surrounded by conditions of, of tiring and getting hungry and depression. What, again, we're, he's talking about already, we're in a sinful world, it's already there. We're addressing why there's never been a sinless human, Leighton. We're talking about an innocent person who hasn't sinned yet, and you're, you're going to start talking about how the reason they end up sinning is because of the things external to them. It's such a blatant contradiction. How is that free will? How is it free will if you are guaranteed to eventually sin? He, he's, he's, he's openly admitting in his view, as their statement of faith says, that you are born in a condition, right? He hates total depravity. Oh, you're, you're born in a condition where you can only sin, and that's horrible. Makes God terrible. And yet you believe... Right? You try to dress it up as free will, but you believe that you are created in a condition whereby you will eventually sin. You're guaranteed to eventually sin. How's that fair? Why isn't God unjust for creating you in that condition? How is it really free will, true free will, if you are in a condition where you will certainly sin? This is, a, this is why your view is a mess. And anxiety and all the struggles of this world, those are the very things that keep us from being able to do what's right or what we know is right. And even in the pagan world, even people who don't have... Uh... All those things external to you keep you from, from being a wonderfully, sinlessly perfect person. Interesting. 
uh, Christianity whatsoever as an influence in their lives can, can testify to this exact same thing in their own lives, where they know what's right and wrong. They have a conscience. They were born with a conscience, according to Romans chapter 2. And the reason sometimes they'll even testify of doing the wrong things is because of temptations, because of influences, because of being tired, because of being frustrated, because of being angry. Well, they'll do things that end up damaging other people or damaging property or damaging themselves because of those very conditions. So yeah. it, it could just be the case. And yet the entire point here is that if libertarian free will, by definition, nothing external to you causes your choices, were true, then all those conditions you just mentioned shouldn't matter. Ultimately, they shouldn't matter at all. You have to talk about them because it's a reality we all live in. And we all know, Leighton likes to say, oh, we intuitively blah, blah, blah. I would say we all intuitively know that everything that Leighton just said and listed off is true. But it proves determinism and it contradicts free will. Hypothetical sinless perfectionism should be possible if free will were actually a thing. And yet everything you just laid out, which is absolutely accurate regarding reality, is a direct refutation of the, the libertarian free will view itself. And I just, I love to see it in action. I love to see them try to account for reality while in the background holding to a presupposition of a view that is contradicted by it. That someone could, you know, let, let's say, let's say someone hits the, the age of the age of accountability. They only have really one morally responsible free choice. They make a good one. So they haven't had any personal guilt. They haven't had any personal sin. They're not sin in Adam, right? The, right. Then what are they repenting? What, how is repentance and grace necessary for salvation? How is Christ necessary for salvation? Because they're out. Now, before Leighton answers, Tyler's point here is nuclear bomb. Okay. So in the provisionist view, you're born innocent and you can't sin until you're morally capable of sin. So whatever that age is, you become morally capable of sin and your first moral action is a good one. It's a good one. Right? Not a bad one, but it's a good one. So now you have reached the age of moral accountability. You have committed a morally good action. So you are now, you're morally good, right? Whether Leighton wants to try to say it's a straw man or not, you can't do it anymore because now you have committed a morally good action, right? Why do you need Christ in that state of existence? You've only ever done moral good. Why do you need Christ? Why do you need forgiveness? Why do you need the gospel? Why do you need a savior? And the answer is, logically speaking, you don't, and you wouldn't. And now I'm going to play Leighton's answer, but you'll notice this isn't an answer. Because they're outside the garden. They're not in fellowship with God. Why? <laughs> See what I point out at the beginning of this episode? Being outside the garden, cast out of the garden, being spiritually dead, cut off from God, not in fellowship with God, what are those things? That's the wages of sin. That's the result of sin. And yet we're talking about a person who's only ever done moral good. So that's not an answer. I don't know how that's a hard answer. It's not an answer at all. Just because they haven't morally done something that's that's like, like a, a four-year-old or a two-year-old or whatever, somebody hasn't reached the age of accountability where they well, will. No, 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 that's not. Tyler's talking about someone who has reached the age of accountability. He just said somebody reaches the age of accountability and their action, their first moral action is a good one. Leighton must have missed that point. Age of accountability where they've willfully rebelled against the things of God. Willfully rebelled. We're not talking about willful rebellion. We're saying that their first willful moral action is a good one. Why does that person need a savior? Why is that person separated from God? Why is that person spiritually dead? Why does that person corrupt? On and on and on. It's not an answer. There is no answer because it's illogical. Doesn't mean that they're in fellowship with God. They don't know God yet. They have, they have a relationship with Christ yet. And so they're, they're outside the garden. They're distant from him. They, they need life in him. Why, why do they need life? If they're born innocent and they're only then their first moral action is a good one, are they why are they dead? Right? If spiritual death is the wages of sin, why are they dead? This view is a mess. I, I don't And this is the point is the idea of original sin. The idea that when Adam sinned, we sinned in Adam and we are born into that fallen state, that is a view that gives an account for us being separated from God. It gives us it gives an account for us being spiritually dead and in need of life from the start I, I don't know i don't know i don't know why that's such a difficult thing to understand in that case right someone someone, someone makes only one and only one morally free choice they make the good one um you know they, they, they choose the right what are they being saved from in that case right because this view doesn't have um it doesn't it doesn't have original sin and so the, so the question becomes well you can't say that the atonement of christ then is a necessary condition for salvation because by the way so there's tyler reiterating the point nuclear bomb point 
just so you're aware, there are some traditionalists. Matter of fact, when I first started this broadcast, I still believed in imputed guilt from birth. Go back, back and listen to my first five or six or 10 episodes. I wasn't introduced to Adam Harwood's work and some of the arguments about uh, imputed guilt. And now here he is again, mentioning so-and-so and their arguments. Is he going to give an actual view? Is he going to articulate something finally? Until much later. You don't have to hold to, you don't, you don't have to drop imputed guilt. Or you can actually believe imputed guilt and still be a provisionist and still hold to the common beliefs of us. Why? Because we don't believe imputed guilt necessitates imputed inability to confess that guilt. Okay. So you can be one who holds to imputed guilt. You're just born guilty, but you're still able to confess that guilt and that corruption and that condition in light of what God sends, the law and the gospel. Okay. So, okay. So provisionists, they welcome both sides of the aisle when it comes to imputed guilt, but what's your view, Leighton? In other words, this is not, we want to know your view. Not a huge point of contention as it seems that Tyler and, and Colin want to make it to be, because you can actually hold to imputed guilt and still be a provisionist by all uh, important, at least all the important distinctions that we would have with regard to these issues. Now, this is really interesting. Like, like if he's going to go down this road and say that, well, you can, you can deny or you can affirm in the imputed guilt of Adam and still be a provisionist? Well, not according to your statement of faith, Leighton. Your statement of faith explicitly denies imputed guilt. It denies it. And so this is this is just an example of what I mentioned earlier, opening the gates. Um, how can you allow, like, where do you start to draw the line? I mean, you also welcome open theists, right? Open theists can be provisionists, and yet open theists deny penal substitutionary atonement, which your statement of faith affirms, right? So how do you square that? Like, how do you start drawing the line to what is necessary to be a provisionist and what isn't? And I think it sort of speaks to what Tyler and I pointed out in our episode. Um, and that was that as long as you're not a Calvinist, you're a provisionist, right? Or you can be a provisionist. What he's basically admitting here is that imputation of guilt isn't unjust. I, I get the impression he said that it is elsewhere. I mean, it's, it's a pretty common argument against Calvinists that imputed guilt would be, you know, unjust. Yet when it's pointed out that, it, well, it's inherent in the gospel, so on and so forth, he basically just has to say, well, yeah, and at the end of the day, it's okay if you affirm it because you can still be a provisionist. And, and this list goes on and on. I mean, do you accept universalists, Leighton? Can universalists be provisionists? I recall your statement of faith also mentioning the, the reality of eternal separation from God. So how do you square that? And, and this is the danger of just opening, throwing the gates open and saying, well, everybody can be a provisionist. And, and sort of minimizing some of these critical issues because, you know, you might not think that the imputed guilt or of Adam or that original sin is a big deal, but it is the very foundation of how we view man and their wills and their relationship to God, and which, leads, which then leads into um, salvation as a whole. The other thing that this does is when you, when, you, when you say, well, you can have both, right? You can either accept it, imputed guilt, or deny it. Well, then this sets up the inevitable it's hard to pin things down, right? So if I point to a provisionist and say, hey, this guy affirms imputed guilt, well, then you say, well, I don't, right? Or, you know, I, I, I've never said that, or you're misrepresenting provisionism now. Well, it's like, well, you kind of opened the, up the possibility for both. So is it or is it not a misrepresent, misrepresentation of provisionism, right? And so this is this is really where things start to get complicated as as all these accepted views that you start to, to allow in begin to like radiate outwards, then you're opening up more and more doors of potential quote-unquote misrepresentation of provisionism, when really that's just the result of you accepting people from all sorts of views and, and giving the particular people impressions that that's what you believe, right? So if someone's first encounter with a provisionist is someone who affirms imputed guilt— and then they come across you and you deny it, well, there's going to be a little bit of confusion there, right? If someone's first impression of a provisionist is an open theist who denies that God knows the future and denies penal substitutionary atonement, and that's the impression they get of provisionism, and then they come across you, well, who's right? Are you the provisionist or are they? And so, you know, I could go on and on with all these different sorts of issues. I'm just pointing out the danger in throwing the gates wide open and not really being strict about what you believe and what you're going to call provisionism. And that's why I think it's safer to just go with what your statement of faith says, right? That person doesn't need salvation. Right. Yeah, and, and it also doubles down. And think about that. Why would that person need salvation? Being saved from the wrath of God against their sins, if they haven't yet sinned. No, I mean, if they're going to, I mentioned earlier, started this all out by saying that their view of sin makes it seem like it's just accidental and almost like a victim mentality. Like, oops, it happened. But it comes 
guys from your, your spokesperson, your, your foremost spokesperson, Leighton Flowers, with analogies like field goal kickers missing, like, oops, he missed. The, the actual analogy should be the field goal kicker wanted to see what it felt like to miss, so he intentionally missed, you know, kick it wide right or whatever. And that, uh, and why would he intentionally miss? Because God decreed him to? See, so when, when he's come in completely demolished and, and this bad analogy is exposed, which he didn't try to correct but actually doubled down on as we saw, Right when we reiterate, when I reiterate that point, and say, "Sin is oops, no big deal," and a proper analogy would be that uh, the field goal kicker wanted to miss. What does he do? Does he say, "Oh yeah, that's that's how the analogy should be," and I I, I should shouldn't have said it this way? No, he just turns it and does those little well, God determined it, flip it on Calvinism thing because because he doesn't have an answer. Is that better? God- better? Who cares what's better? Right? Right? This isn't about better. I mean. If Calvinism's bad and yours is just a little better, is yours still bad, right? Like, I, I, it's not about who's quote-unquote better. God cre- it's about who has logical and biblical answers to these issues. Created him to always miss field goals while pretending like he was trying to make them. Again, you can... No, actually, the, the, the Calvinist view is that God creates man in a condition whereby they only ever want to miss field goals. Even though they know they're supposed to make them, they don't want to make them because making them is less fun than missing them. And, and wreaking havoc. So they desire on a constant basis to miss field goals. And until God changes their desires to start wanting to make field goals, that's what they'll keep doing by nature. I can, I can argue the analogy with you all day long, but how about we just stick to the point of the analogy? Yeah. That might be helpful. That's, once again, addresses the... And that's, that's amazing. Stick to the point of the analogy, which is exactly what we did. It's exactly what you doubled down on. To me, this was like a jackpot. I think we're going to bring this to a close. I thought I was going to get to an ex, uh, a very good example. We've already heard a couple instances of Leighton sort of, you know, instead of answering, just saying, go read this article, do this Google search sort of thing. But he, he really launches into that pretty heavily. And instead of doing that at the end of this episode, I'm going to start the next episode off with one example of that, make a few comments on why I think it's a little um, unfair and immature. And then that'll set the tone for why uh, in the next uh, episode, I'll be able to skip a lot of those sorts of things and save a lot of time as we try to finish up uh, the second response that Leighton did. So with that said, you guys take it easy. Not sure when that episode's coming, hopefully pretty soon. And uh, remember to stay consistent, my friends. Mm-hmm.